0: So we are continuing our series this morning uh, called Devoted, Why uh, You Must Love the Church, Why I Must Love the Church, Why We Must Love the Church, the Corporate Church, Christ's Church uh, this morning. And so we're going to be um, firstly in 2 Timothy, that's going to be our main text this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and um, it's a very short text, Uh, it's a very powerful one as well. And um, before we do that, before we read the Word of God... Um, I would love to just pray and ask God to come and to bring a sense of uh, understanding this morning as we do this. So join with me as we pray. Father, we just we ask Lord God as we come before you this morning and as we, as we dive in, as we, as we settle in, as we fix our attention upon uh, the power of your word, of your revealed word this morning, God, that you would in every way exercise and cause and create um, transformation. That you would cause and create transformation. That you would illuminate and bring understanding to, God, what you have said and how it is to impact and change the lives of those who hear it. God, you have shown us and you have provided for us the completeness of your revealed word so that you can train us so that you can empower us so that you can cause transformation and a renewing of the mind so that our lives reflect christ and so lord i pray that this this word would bring nourishment would would bring um god would bring growth Lord, would establish maturity, Lord, in each one who hears this morning. Lord, I pray for the power of your word to to be present and to manifest in the life of every believer, that as we hear your word and as we understand it and as it is applied, God, that it would cause us to live differently. God, I pray that it would bring conviction where it needs to, God, I pray that if it, if it necessitates a time of confession before you, God, that you would do that. God, I pray that it would bring encouragement and joy where it needs to. God, I pray that you would work all things to the power of your will and to the purpose of your desire in the hearts of every believer as we get to feast on and be nourished by and to grow in your word through the power and the life-giving presence of your Holy Spirit who lives in us. We thank you for this, and we ask God for you to do and accomplish all of your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so quick, uh quick uh, question for you guys this morning. Uh, how do you interact with the word of God? How do you interact with the word of God? And by interact, I just basically mean how it is that you, you know, experience it. Um, Is it, I'll give you a couple of examples. So it could be just you sit down and read it, right? You sit down and read it, and you just just read, right? Uh, Maybe you participate in Bible study. Uh, Maybe it's more listening, so you're hearing someone, like right now. Well, you're doing both right now, hopefully. But maybe it's you hear something, your sermon, you're listening to a message, you're listening to a sermon, um, meditation to a certain point, but that really involves reading, right? Um, so we read a passage and, and we, we think upon that passage and we, we meditate on the truth that is, that is in that. Uh, how is it that you guys maybe this week interact or interacted with the Word of God? Okay, Kathy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're praying scripture. So as you're praying, God reveals to you, yep, through the spirit, and then you pray. Yeah, yeah that's a, a good one. I do that, too. I pray scripture. Yeah. Okay. Chad, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Anybody, Anybody else? else? How did you interact with the word this morning or, or this week or, or whenever? Anybody else? Cynthia, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you just straight reading. And taking notes, because, no, well, you're You're a writer, so I thought thought you'd always take notes. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's good, (laughs) Lori, yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm Mm-hmm, Good. Laura yeah that's cool yeah yeah hmm that's, that's really, really good, good. when yeah. yeah yeah good. There you go. <laughs> Try is the key word there, right? <laughs> All <laughs> right, Sandy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing better than seeing scripture. Yeah. Uh, actually, it was um, Chris. Actually, it's sent a me a song, song this week by, by was, was it, was it Judah? Is it Judah? And the song was amazing because it used so much scripture. Like it, it, it just wasn't, their, it wasn't just their lyrics that they had come up with. Right. But it was, they were, they were singing scripture and it was just made it so much more powerful to actually understand that you, you hear the word of God, like you read it, but then when you hear it being brought to music, it's just, it's so powerful. It, it brings a whole different dimension, I think, to understanding scripture. Um, in that sense. So, last one. Okay, Christy. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Mmm, it's good prayer. It's good prayer. Yeah. Yeah, the reason why I ask that is because in Timothy, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, um, there's a specific way in which God has called the church to interact with the Word of God, and so we're going to talk about that this morning. And so the the title of the message this morning really is um, the publisher of the truth, the publisher of the truth, and that is uh, one of the reasons why Uh, we must love the church because the church is the publisher of the truth. And I know that sounds kind of strange. No, we're not putting out magazines, even though there are magazines and books that are put out. That's not what I mean by being a publisher of the truth. Uh, We'll look at that in a moment um, with, with, with Timothy and what Paul's exhortation to Timothy is and how that bears out in the life of the church. And so really this is kind of continuing in our series of why we we must love the church. And as you guys know we have um, the church really is uh, participating in the church and devotion to the church is essential to the the nourishment of the Christian. That we we, we cannot be fully brought into this place of growth and maturity and training and righteousness outside of our participation in the church on a regular basis. To be a part of the church is the main way in which every believer is nourished and grows and comes to maturity christ's church provides the core elements for this process it provides the core elements aimed at producing one who is set apart one who is holy unto god and so one of the core elements we've been we've been talking about these core elements in part of the structure of this of this series in the in the substance of the series. So we've been looking at the structure at the beginning here. The first part is the source. We looked at the source of the church. Why should the church, why should we love the church because of the source of the church, right? And then we looked at, we're looking at now the substance of the church and we'll be looking at the sacredness of the church. But when we're talking about the source of the church, what we're talking about is the originator, the initiator, the author. And so we must love the church. Why? Because it's being built by Christ. Christ says, I'm building my church, Matthew 16, 18, right? He said, I tell you the truth, Peter, you are this rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Christ is building the church, and that's why we must love the church. Jesus said to him, on this, on Peter's confession that he is the son of the living God, the Christ, he said, on this confession and on you, Peter, I will build this church, I will build my church you will be the effective agent in the building of it in the building up of it as you are sent out by me and then in first corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 we see that christ not only is building it but he's building it on himself on him as the foundation paul said it here for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is christ and we talked about how churches often want to lay their foundation on men on with the wisdom of men on you know, the teachings of men, you know, on, on you know, on gimmicks and, and on systems and, you know, on strategies and things like that that are really coming from the heart of men. But, but Christ says, I will lay the foundation of the church on me, right? And then the substance. We looked at the substance last week. We talked about this for a moment. Uh, the substance really is this essential content. It's the core principles, the core elements of the church. And it's, it's important features, it's, it's beneficial qualities, what it provides for the Christian, the significance of it. And so last week we looked at how the Christian must love the church because it is where the truth is supported. It is where it is protected. It is where it is guarded. Essentially, the church is the guardian of the truth. And by extension, you are a guardian of the truth if you are part of the church. It is your responsibility to protect and uphold and support and guard the truth to the world around you. When the world creeps in, when, when teachings creep in that are, that are not in line with God's word, it is so easy for the Christian to swerve from the truth. And so we are to be protectors and guardians of it. And this morning, I want to look at this idea. And this is sort of our summary statement for this, for this sermon this morning. The Christian must love the church because it is where God's word is publicly declared. The Christian must love the church because it is where God's word is publicly declared. The church is the publisher of the truth. And by publisher, I mean much more than writing a book or a magazine, even though the publisher of the truth relies on the revealed word of God. But it's, it's not only where, where the, the word is publicly declared, it's where it is heard, right? So you hear it, right? It's not only where it's heard, but where it's explained. And it's not only explained, but it's applied. And you won't see this in any other institution on the earth. And the most effective way for the church to protect and guard and support the truth is to be continually and consistently declaring it and explaining it so that you can be equipped to go out and to preach the truth, to share the truth, to declare Christ to those who don't know him. See, that's the point of you coming and us assembling together. It's to worship God, but it's also to be equipped in the truth so that when we go out into the world, we are armored. We, 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 have, uh, we have weapons to, to, to combat the world with truth, but also to draw people in with the truth. And so that is our focus. No other public institution, assembly establishment or organization exists for the express purpose of publishing God's Word. Think about it. No other assembly does this. No other institution does this. No other organization does this. You won't hear the Word of Christ continually being declared or explained in the U.S. House chamber, or the Senate, or the English Parliament, or the courtrooms of America. They may reference the truth, but their role and their purpose is not to proclaim and declare and explain and draw people into a faith in Christ through the truth. They have a different purpose. I'm not saying that they're neglecting their purpose. It's just, that's not their purpose, right? His revealed words is not heralded continually by universities or ac- academies or colleges. It's not regularly expounded upon in in popular, you know, media or entertainment or the arts, right? The business world or the education world or the sports world or the media world, the entertainment world, the political world. These have Christians living in them and participating in them, but their stated purpose is not to endorse the truth or declare it or explain it. Why? because Christ has purposed his church to be the exclusive repository. In other words, the storehouse, the depot for the truth. It is where the truth resides and has its habitation. And it is where the truth resides and has its habitation, but it's also where his truth is dispensed, it's brought out, it's declared, it's publicly explained. The church dispenses the truth to work for this purpose, to work conviction, repentance, and salvation in the unbeliever, and to work sanctification in the believer. But this is not a novel idea. This is not a novel concept. I want to take you to Nehemiah chapter 8, Verses 1 to 8. I'll read it. You don't have to go there, but I want to read it for you so that you understand, wow, this is not something new that God is just doing now in this time, in this season. Listen to—I'm going to read portions of it, not the whole thing. But I want you to get a sense of the situation here. Uh, In Nehemiah chapter 8, they had just came back from their captivity in Babylon. They had built the altar— and they had finished basically building the wall to protect the city. And this is what it says, this is what is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they had told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses to the Lord, uh, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, the word of God, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, On the first day of the seventh month, this would have been the Feast of Trumpets. This would have been on sort of the new year, uh, the Jewish new year. There's basically two new years, but we won't really get into that. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, the and Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And then beside him, there were um, just a list of names. And they were, they were in the crowd. Uh, the, we'll kind of understand why they were there. And Ezra opened the book in the sight. This is verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Can you, can you visualize this? I mean, a massive group of people, Ezra comes with the book of the law, the word of God, and he's about to present the word of God to the people of Israel, and they all stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Think about this. What caused the people of Israel to worship God? simply by hearing the word of God. No fanfare, no emotional manipulation. <laughs> you know, no, you know what I mean? There, there, there was no, you know, pomp and circumstance. You know, it was, it was simply the reading of the word of God that caused the people of God to worship God such a beautiful visual and then it says all of these men and the levites they were there for a purpose they helped the people to understand the law so what happened they explained they applied they heard the word and then it was immediately explained and applied to them they read from the book from the law of god clearly And they gave the sense so that the people understanding the reading. And so this is not a novel thing that we're doing. This is something prescribed by God way back in the Old Testament. And so when we gather this morning, we gather together. Why we must love the church is because the church is the publisher of the word of God. And the people of God come to worship God by hearing the word of God declared so that it can bring transformation. Look at what it did. It caused them to celebrate and to worship God and to repent and to come back to God. See, when we declare the word of God, it has the power to bring people back to God. When we declare the word of God and the word of truth is spoken it brings the power of conviction on every heart causing them to analyze their life and causing them to understand who God is in the holiness of God and causing them to come back to God and worship him and so it is no different for us this morning as the church it is not a novel idea but it is one that God has purposed from the beginning for his people Back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This letter from Tim to Timothy is provided and written by Paul. And really, this is Paul's last letter. Paul is at the end of his life. Paul, these are his final words of exhortation to Timothy. This is, in many ways, his concluding thoughts to his spiritual son. And this letter really is a closing statement in Paul's life. It is his final argument. It is an encouragement for Timothy. And this is the encouragement for Timothy. He wants Timothy to do these things. He wants Timothy to abound in godly living. He wants Timothy to show fidelity to the preaching of God's word. And he wants Timothy to be prepared for the coming apostasy within the church. Paul is warning Timothy and exhorting Timothy. He says, many are going to fall away and swerve away from the truth. And that's why it is absolutely critical, Timothy, that you dedicate your life to these things. And tradition really holds this, that, that Paul's final letter to Timothy this is his final letter, but these are the final words that we find in the canon of scripture by Paul. These are his last words, and his last words should be regarded as lasting words. In other words, we should pay attention to what Paul is saying in this letter in 2 Timothy. The reality of the gospel and the reality of Paul's suffering for the gospel and his imminent death is palpable in this letter you cannot escape this backdrop. It is a predominant backdrop and thrust of this letter. I want to take you just for a quick reference and context here. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8. This is what Paul says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, which is Christ, nor of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed. People are going to cause you to be ashamed of the gospel and ashamed of Christ. They're going to try to um, they're going to try to um, convince you that, that you should not believe. They should try to convince you uh, that you should leave your ministry. They should, they're going to try to convince you uh, that you must abandon what you have learned and heard and are living out. He said, do not be ashamed of me or the gospel, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In other words, share as a prisoner as I am suffering. He says he is suffering for the gospel by the power of God and his testimony about, his, uh, about Christ, and he should not be ashamed of these things, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul is speaking not figuratively, not metaphorically, but literally he is in prison. Verse two or chapter two, verses eight. This is what he says: Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. In verse four, six, and seven, he says this: For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. So here we see Paul's life and the death is imminent. It is the next thing to happen to Paul. And so this is what he says to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. He says this, I charge you, and this is our main text, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And he goes on to say how it is that the word is to be delivered and the effects it has on its hearers. But I want to just stop there. And I want us to see this. In the first part, in verse 1, Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing. Paul makes it clear that the charge to Timothy and the church in proclaiming God's word is tremendously important. It is a great consequence. The church's responsibility to the word is not to be considered a trivial matter, nor should it be accepted in a superficial manner. It is not to be a sideshow for the church, It is not to be one thing of many things, but it is to be central to the expression of the church. It is the centrality of God's word in worship. Paul says this, it is a mandatory obligation. There is no getting around it. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Christ, who is to judge the living the dead. I want us to think about this idea of charge. He charges Timothy. In other words, he testifies. This is Paul's testimony, and it's confirming something about Timothy. When Paul, when Paul writes this to him, when he says, I charge you, Timothy, to do these things, there is a gravity to this charge. There is a gravity to these words coming from Paul. And he raises, there's this seriousness of his responsibility. There's a seriousness in the responsibility of the church to do what Paul is commanding Timothy to do. And he makes this so serious that he actually invokes Christ and God himself. In other words, what Paul is saying is that what I am telling you, the witnesses that I am providing for you are corroborating this message. It's as if Paul is sitting in the courtroom and he's charging Timothy with a responsibility. And it's Christ and God sitting right next to Paul, corroborating as a witness to what Paul is charging Timothy with. That's how serious Paul is making this charge it is the full weight of the charge being bared and brought and backed by Christ himself it is essentially Paul getting commands from heavenly headquarters and it is Paul in the chain of command that is bringing these these Uh, heavenly instructions and commands to Timothy himself. That's how serious the wording here is when we read this passage. This call is not confirmed by the authority of men, but it is divinely initiated and endorsed. These are not just words that Paul decided to give Timothy. These are not just something that welled up in Paul and he's acting out of his own emotion or feeling. But these are cha- these are charges and responsibilities coming from heaven itself. That's the language here. Also in view is this idea of judgment. Paul says, in view that Christ is coming to judge all things, preach the word. In other words, your ministry is going to be judged. The ministry of the church will be judged by Christ. We will not be judged on our sin because Christ has taken on that judgment himself, but we will be judged with what we do with our lives. We will have to give an account to Christ when he returns, to what we have done with his message, with his gospel, and how it is that we have answered the call and the responsibility that is charged to every single believer. It's a sobering thought, but it's in the word of God, and we have to preach it. Yes, it is important. And yes, we have a, a high level of responsibility, but it is, it is a responsibility charged to us. Why? Because God has already given us the power and the ability to do it through the Spirit. This, we're not relying on our own functions, our own faculties, in order to, to, to do these things, in order to be able to, to live out the life and to, and, to, and to live out the life and the purposes through the will of God. But God has given us the power and the ability through the Spirit to do these things, to perform what he has charged us to do. But we will all give an account. So there is a seriousness in this charge, and secondly, I want us to see what it is and how Timothy is supposed to do what he's been charged to do, and and by extension, the church as well. Look at what he says. What is he charged to do? He's charged to do one thing, preach the word, preach the word. And that is why we must love the church, because this is where God's word is publicly declared, where it is published. So I want us to see here how and what we declare matters. What we declare matters and how we declare it matters. Look what he says. He says, preach the word. And so he's kind of underscoring this idea of what is the material and what is the manner, right? What is the material, what is the manner? He says, preach the word. This word uh, in the Greek, "caruso" this is a verb, and it's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's a command to herald, to proclaim openly, to publish, to make known something. It is like a public crier with this gravity of authority. It's like a a public crier that that enters a town and begins to declare uh, the events that have happened in the kingdom. It's like a public crier who who, who comes into town and and, and gathers the citizens around to announce the good news of battles won or territory claimed or, or a new a royal offspring that has been born. Right? It, it comes. It's a public crier who comes and gives good news regarding the kingdom or the nation in which the citizens live in. It's this. It's that same kind of idea. That when the church proclaims the word of God, it is we are proclaiming the good news to the world. And for for, for Timothy, this verb. Is in the imperative, so it means there's no negotiating with God on this. The order has come down from a divine chain of command. There's no room for the church to compromise, accommodate this call, but we are to be the public crier announcing the good news for the world to hear. And we are simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. Look at this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to what? Preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Publicly declaring the truth. Mark one thirty-eight. Let us go on. This is Jesus speaking to the next town. That I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Jesus came to preach and declare and to publish the good news of salvation that can only be wrought through faith in him. Next. That is how we are to declare it. That is how we are to make it known. But what is the substance? Paul says, preach the word. Preach the word. This word in the Greek is logos, right? A word uttered by a living voice embodying a conception or idea. But this is not a word among many. This is not a message to be considered among other competing ideas. This truth is not a truth of many truths. It is not a word of many words that vies for the attention of its audience. This word does not have any mutual authority with other thoughts or conceptions or ideologies. This is the word, not a word, but the church is to preach the word. And that word is Christ. That word, and the extension the church, is to publicly declare is the truth, is Christ is the word made flesh, John 1.14. That is what we are to declare and publish. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here this morning, it is because God's grace and mercy has overflowed to you. And he has shown you the truth of who he is. He has demonstrated that for you. And you have received it by faith. God has shown himself and you have believed. And Paul says, I and a recipient of God's overflowing grace. Because before I acted ignorantly and unbelief, I didn't know, I didn't understand. I was deceived. I was, there was a delusion over me. But the Holy Spirit came and encountered me and now I know God has shown me who he is. He's shown me the truth by the power of the gospel and I've received it and now I'm living it. But God has done this for one purpose, and through one way, through the overflowing of his grace and his mercy. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, this must be universally understood that Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost.
1: Notice Paul doesn't
0: say, I was. Paul still considered himself to be that, even though he was... A saint and saved and being sanctified, he still understood the presence and power of sin in his life, but it didn't prevent him from fulfilling the will and the purposes of God for him. So there's no time to diminish this, there's no time to minimize this, there's no time to alter this truth, there's no time to acquiesce to current trends or popular styles or the latest craze. There's no time to be obsessed with just personal revelations and self-help advice and psychological comfort or guaranteed health or earthly prosperity. It is not a time for repackaging the message to make it more palatable to the world. The church shall preach the word for the benefit of salvation for the sinner and sanctification for the believer. And that is why we preach the word, and that is why we must love the church, because it is where we see the word of God declared publicly. And lastly, when should we do this? When should the church preach the word? Paul says this, be ready, when? In season and out of season. In other words, there is never a season that is not conducive to preaching the gospel, to declaring and publishing the gospel. In other words, what Paul is saying is, when will the church be most persuasive with the message of the gospel? When is the appropriate time to speak of the wonders of salvation? Is there an appropriate time or place or setting to promote God's word? According to Paul, it was always the right time to preach about Christ, to declare Christ. And when I say preach, guys, I hope you you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it, that word is taken on a very condescending and pejorative sort of feel to it in a negative sense. You know, you hear people talking about when they're being scolded or when they're being corrected to stop preaching at me, right? That's not what, as we know, when we look at the word, that's not what it means. Preaching just means to publicly declare, to publish, to make known. And that's what we do. That's what the church, that's what we do here. But externally, by extension, that's what you do in your life. That, that is the point, like I said before. Coming and being a part of the church is to be equipped and to be empowered by the Spirit to preach the truth, to share the gospel, to see people coming into the kingdom. To see people being drawn by Christ, and you being a part of that drawing. Because Christ said, no one can come to the Father unless he's drawn to him. God does the drawing, right? God does the drawing. We don't draw, but when we declare and publish the truth, it in some way is part of that process of God drawing. Listen to what Paul says, First Timothy chapter 4. Until I come, right? Because Paul's not there. He's writing this letter for encouragement and instruction. Until I come, until I see you, devote, which means give attention, apply thought and effort yourself. Devote yourself, all of you, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, there's never not a good time to do this. There's never not an appropriate time to preach God's word. Many philosophical debaters, they tend to use techniques to help them carefully choose opportunities to share certain things as to whether or not they can be more persuasive in their arguments. When you watch debaters, um, they're carefully crafting when they're gonna make their points and how they can be most persuasive by, you know, carefully figuring out when to share and when not to share. let me just say that that is not the way the gospel of Christ is to be shared. The gospel of Christ is to be shared, but not to be subjected to these methods, right, of trying to pick the right time. I mean, obviously, there are, we need to use discernment, <laughs> right? We need to use discernment and, and understand the nature of conversations that we're in, absolutely. But what Paul is saying is that there's never not an appropriate time. The gospel shall be declared when it is popular and when it isn't, when it's well received and when it's rejected, when it's safe and when it's dangerous. And here's the mystery, guys, that it never needs a carefully crafted moment. It de- never needs a conducive atmosphere. It never needs a favorable situation. It never needs a it never needs any of those things to produce change. It never needs those things to produce conviction or repentance or salvation because it's the power of the Spirit that does these things. It's the power of the Spirit. That's the way the results are achieved. It is not anything in us, but it is God working through the declaration of his truth. And so that should take a lot of pressure off of us. All we do is share and declare, and God brings the growth. The Holy Spirit works conviction and change and transformation in the lives of all who have not believed and in the lives of all who do as well. So why must we love the church? Simply this. We must love the church because it is where we hear the word of Christ publicly declared, explained, and applied. And it is where we are trained to learn the dynamics of the gospel, the features of the gospel, making us more impactful, making us more better equipped ambassadors and dispensers of the truth with everyone in our lives. Because this is what the world seeks. The world seeks truth. The world doesn't necessary isn't looking for Christ, but the world seeks truth, the world seeks understanding, and it is the church that has the truth. It is where the truth of God inhabits, and it is where the truth lies and is declared. And so if we are going to be ambassadors, dispensers, if we are going to be those storehouses that are ready to give away the truth, then we must be participating in being devoted to the life of the church where that equipping and that training happens the most. And that is why we must love the church this morning. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth that we must hold and consider to be of utmost importance when thinking about our commitment and devotion to this body of believers. Amen? Let's stand.